following the news at all, you know that we have several thousand, I think about 3,000 soldiers that are going to be deployed here soon to serve overseas. And so what we want to do, we want to take some time in this service, and we want to pray for them. I think some of them are here this morning, so I'm just going to ask them to come with their families and just kind of line up here on the front of the stage here, front of the thrust, and we want to pray over them. And we're going to have a face that's familiar around here. Chaplain Matt Freeze from the Air National Guard is going to come and and he's going to pray, and some men, elders, leaders of our church are going to come and stand behind these families. We, we want to say thank you for what you do. All of you who serve in that way, thank you very, very much. And we're going to commit to praying for you while you're serving and for your families that are here. We want to honor you in this way, Pastor Freeze. Thanks, Pastor Brad. Years ago, I, uh, just real quick, joined the Air Guard because I was a pastor of a local church and I wanted to know how to best connect with the military side of the house because deployments and PCSing and everything that takes place within the military family um, is something that I wanted to make sure I was ministering to. And so even though I'm in this capacity as a chaplain with the Guard, it's a privilege to stand alongside you guys as we pray over you and uh, ask for God's blessing and strength. So if you will, Extend a hand to this, these families here and join me in prayer. Jesus, we come before you this day grateful for this nation that we live in. God, listening to the messages last week and hearing that if you make $10,000 a year, you're better off than 98% of the world's population. If you make over $50,000 a year, you're better than 99% of the world's population, many of which try to live off a dollar a day. I guess we're in the 1%. And Jesus, we are a people that stand here today united under one banner, under one flag, and that's yours. God, we're a people that long for peace and train for war to go and to give opportunities to other nations and people. And I know that can be, seem idealistic. But God, the greatest need that the people of Afghanistan and Iraq have is you. And God, I pray that what happens in transitions and governments that come in, that there would be freedoms that would arise in these nations. That God, what we would not pass on to them is our culture of self-centeredness and living for our own self and that our blessings become a curse that we fixate on things rather than the giver of all good things. That, God, we, we fail oftentimes to recognize that the most important aspects of life are the people that surround us that will last forever, and everything that we have will one day be somebody else's or be in a dump somewhere. So, Jesus, as these guys get ready to go, I pray that they would see this deployment as an opportunity to grow in their relationship with their family. God, the inevitable is upon us. And as they step onto the plane and they begin this transition, there will be many feelings as they depart. But I pray over the families that oftentimes uh, with kids of various ages, it's difficult to understand. But God, I pray that during this time that they would be intentional about focusing on you and each other. That God, at this time, that they would see their real strength comes from you. 
And God, they would lean on you in a way like they've never leaned before. God, we pray that your peace would transcend the doubts. We know that we're in a war not against flesh and blood, but as they leave and depart, that the enemy is going to try to wreak havoc with bringing doubts and fears. And we are not a people that are lived by fear. We have you, the sovereign God, who is in control of all of the days of our life. And there's not one thing that can happen apart from you knowing it and you directing. So we pray your safety over those that go and those back home. We pray, God, that your peace would settle in on this family, knowing that you are sovereign and that you are in control. And that, God, as they go, that they would be salt and light to the people they come in contact with. Because, Lord, I know the many opportunities that I had to be able to share you in those fireside chats and the, and the unexpected times where someone is concerned about life or something happening on the other side of the world. And God, it was there that your presence was made known in somebody's life. And an individual can come to know you as their Lord and Savior and trust you. So Jesus, in all of these things, as we strive and these men and women deploy to continue to protect our freedoms here at home, we thank you in advance for their safety going and their safety returning. We thank you in advance for the kingdom that we long for and that one day all peoples of the earth will gather before your throne and praise you, the one King of kings and Lord of lords for all of eternity. It's in the powerful name of Jesus that we stand and reach out our hands and we pray these things and we confidently approach the throne. In your name, Jesus, amen. Thank you, Matt. Thank you, soldiers. God bless you. You can be seated. Church, you can be seated. We have a privilege this morning. I have a gentleman, a pastor from Change Point, that's going to come and share with us. I had the privilege last week of going over to Change Point as a part of a pulpit swap that the churches of Anchorage are encouraging, just an expression of unity uh, that we have. There's really how many churches in town? There's really only one church in town, the Church of the Lord Jesus Christ. And Dan Gerald from Change Point, uh, we're on the receiving end this morning. He's going to come. He's going to open the Word of God to us and bless us with that. So come, Dan. Thanks, Brad. What a pleasure it is to be with you today. Uh, about three days ago, I was all the way across the world, took about a three-week trip around the circumpolar north, north of the 60th parallel. Uh, you wonder why in the world would you want to do that in November, right? But it was quite an experience. We visited Siberia and Norway and Finland and Iceland. And I'm a little jet-lagged. I got on an airplane in Reykjavik, Iceland at 4.55 in the afternoon, flew eight hours to Seattle and landed at 4.30 the same afternoon. So it's quite interesting how that all works. But uh, what I want to share with you is a little bit before we begin. It's just the experience I had in the Republic of Yakutia. Yakutia is uh, a region of Siberia, very east in Russia. In fact, you couldn't throw a rock there from Alaska, but just about. Very, very close to us. You can't get there except by flying through Seattle and Beijing. But they're very, very close to us. And... Uh, 17 years ago, when the Soviet Union fell at the end of the Soviet era, there were no evangelical churches in the entire Republic of Yakutia. 
Yakutia, the Republic of Yakutia is more than two and a half times the size of Alaska. 1.5 million people. Not a single evangelical church 17 years ago. Of people who'd suffered under the cruelty of an atheistic regime for 70 years. We met pastors and other leaders whose parents had been executed because of their faith. Yakutia is the area of Russia where the gulags, many of the gulags were. And so many of the people that are in Yakutia today are descendants of those that were politically exiled uh, to that cold part of the world. 17 years ago, a man from the Ukraine by the name of Valentin Nikonyeko went into Yakuts, which is the capital of Yakutia, and began to disciple leaders. And today, 17 years later, there are 27 registered churches and 55 small groups in the Republic of Yakutia. Jesus Christ and the gospel of Jesus Christ is taking hold in the world. And sometimes, you know, I was thinking about you men deploying. Sometimes it seems like the world is out of control. But God ultimately comes back and does things even in the most dire circumstances. So anyway, it just reminded me that it really is one church. Doesn't matter where you meet, does it? People in Yakuts, Russia, are celebrating the same faith that you and I celebrate. It's the same cross that they kneel before, the same gospel that they draw their life from, the same table that they enjoy as they come to the table of communion. So I want to say thank you for inviting me here, here in Anchorage in a small way. We're just celebrating the same reality. It's one church. Last week, Brad was in our pulpit, and he did a spectacular job. He represented you and Jesus Christ very well. You should be very proud of your pastor. In fact, in fact, I got a bunch of emails from people to ChangePoint said, just stay in Russia. We'll, we're okay. We got Brad. No, I'm lying to you, but that's okay. Um, what I want to say, because I know he won't say it, Brad is one of my heroes. This, this is a guy who was committed to the scripture, committed to Christ, and deeply in love with this local church. You are very, very blessed to have him, and I hope you tell him that. I hope you tell him often. Okay? All right. Well, I want to introduce you this morning to another one of my heroes. This one comes from history. Uh, this is Monsignor Hugh O'Flaherty. Uh, you probably don't know him because he was born in, in 1898 in Ireland. Uh, prior to World War II, he was just a simple Catholic priest assigned to the Vatican in Rome. But by the end of World War II, this man was famous. He was famous because single-handedly he was responsible for saving over 6,500 lives. Father Hugh uh, uh, O'Flaherty, organized and oversaw a railroad, an underground railroad road that got allied soldiers and Jews out of German-occupied Europe. Six, over 6,500 during those years. Now, he was a master of disguise and great uh, statistician when it came to getting people out. He was kind of wily and slipperly, slippery, and the Gestapo and the police could never catch him, so he earned the name the Scarlet Pimpernel of the Vatican. Now, you can find a book by that name, and also there's a movie that stars Gregory Peck that's quite old, but it's all about Hugh O'Flaherty's story. He's a remarkable man. Now, he had some arch enemies, and first among his arch enemies was Lieutenant Colonel Herbert Kapler. Uh, Colonel Kapler was the head of the Gestapo in Rome. 
And when he first took that post, he demanded a multi-million dollar ransom to spare the lives of the, of the Jews in Rome and the surrounding parts of Italy. And so when the Pope and the leading rabbi in Rome joined efforts and raised that ransom and then paid it to Kapler. Kapler turned around the next day, rounded up the Jews, and sent them to concentration camps anyway. He tortured people. He routinely tortured and executed anyone he suspected to be connected to the resistance. And on one occasion when there had been a kind of an attack on some uh, German soldiers, he responded by randomly selecting 320 prisoners parading them down the streets of Rome, taking them out to some caves outside of the Roman city and mowing them down with machine guns. And then blasting the cave openings so that the families could never find their bodies. He was a diabolical person. Now he had an accomplice in crime by the name of Pietro Koch. He was also known as Ludwig Koch. Koch was the head of interrogation for both the Roman or the Italian fascist police and the Gestapo. And he was known as a master of torture, both crude and refined. He had some favorite techniques. One of them was to take a leather strap that was studded with long, thin spikes and wrap that around a person's body and slowly tighten it. Another favorite technique was to file, systematically file down the teeth of a subject until he got to the roots you know, the nerves. If you've ever had one root canal, you know what we're talking about here. This man was a sadist, and historians say that he is among the most hated individuals in all of Roman history. Now, if you know anything about Roman history, that is saying something. This was a hated man. Now, near the end of the war, Koch realized that the Germans were not going to be able to hold on to their control in Rome. And knowing what that would mean for his family, in desperation, he came to Father O'Flaherty. And he asked O'Flaherty to use the same Underground Railroad that Koch had tried to destroy to smuggle out his mother and wife. Now, what would you do if you were Father O'Flaherty? I just want to remind you, this man is your arch enemy. He has tortured your friends. He's killed your colleagues. He's tried to kill you many times, condemned you to die. He has ruthlessly tortured thousands of people that you love, and now he's asking you for mercy. You might say the reality of Hugh O'Flaherty's faith was tested at this point in his life. Probably a greater test than any other test he ever had. Certainly greater than the test of his faith risking his life to get people out of Europe. Here he's been asked to do something so fundamentally opposed to the way we naturally think. Obviously, Koch had no personal relationship with Jesus Christ. He was a miserable man, but apparently he understood the gospel. Because you see, when he was desperate, Pietro Koch believed that a true follower of Jesus Christ would extend mercy even to their greatest enemy. He believed it was a mark of true Christianity. He believed that mercy was the fail-proof test of faith for those who had the real disease of Christianity. 
I think Jesus taught that very same thing. In fact, in the fifth beatitude of his Sermon on the Mount, he says this. He says, blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. You know, as you think about the Beatitudes in the Sermon on the Mount, I'm convinced that those Beatitudes form an outline of the entire sermon. Uh, Jesus was a preacher, and so what he did before he gives the whole sermon is he gives you an outline. This is what I'm going to talk about, and there are seven Beatitudes there. If you look at those Beatitudes and then you go into the Sermon on the Mount, you can find sections of the sermon that deal with each of those concepts. And here Jesus is laying out a fifth principle in these, this outline, and later he's going to talk about it. We're going to look at it in uh, Matthew chapter 7. But this beatitude is very different than the previous four. I mean, outline points one through four in his sermon have to do with our relationship with God and our posture before him vertically. It's our, it has to do with our inner life. You might say it has to do with the first half of the great command to love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength, okay? But Beatitudes 5 through 7 turn the tables a little bit and they focus on not our relationship with God so much, but our relationship with others and our posture before people, the expression of our relationship with God outwardly and horizontally. So it has to do really with the second half of the great command to love your neighbor as yourself. Now it's interesting to me that when Jesus makes this turn of thought, when he goes from the vertical to the horizontal in his sermon, the first thing he emphasizes is mercy. Not, not holiness, not purity, not discipline, not prayer, not law, not knowledge, none of those things but mercy. Why? Well, I think it's because mercy is the primary expression of the kingdom of Christ on earth. It is the one value that clearly marks the life of a follower of Jesus. You know, healthcare professionals call this a pathognomonic symptom. A pathognomonic symptom is a, is a symptom that always accompanies a particular disease. And when you have that symptom, you got that disease. It is a peculiar uh, symptom to a certain illness or a disease. So Jesus says mercy is pathognomonic to Christianity. If you don't have mercy, you don't have Jesus. You got mercy, you do. That's really what he's saying here. That symptom proves the disease. Think about it. Merciful people recognize their own need. They are poor in spirit. Merciful people grieve over the realities of sin and death. They are those who mourn. Merciful people trust the love of the Father. They are meek. And they, uh, they practice humility. Merciful people long for real life. They hunger and thirst after righteousness. Those who understand mercy understand all of these beatitudes. Mercy captures the essence of the gospel. It is the compassion of the gospel. A, a love for people who are suffering under the consequences of sin plus the action of the gospel that is a willingness to do something about those consequences that leads to the promise of the gospel. Think of John chapter 3, verse 16. 
for God so loved the world, compassion, right? That he gave his only begotten son, action. That whosoever believeth in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. Mercy. Compassion plus action equals mercy. It's the unquestionable sign of those who truly believe the gospel of Christ. Now, to set the stage here a little bit in some context, mercy is different than grace. Now, they go hand in hand for sure, but they're a little bit different. Grace is getting what you don't deserve. Mercy is not getting what you do deserve. Okay? So, grace is getting forgiveness. You don't deserve that. Mercy is not going to hell. You do deserve that. So by grace, Jesus came that we might see God, something that we don't deserve. And by mercy, Jesus died so that we wouldn't be condemned, something that we do deserve. Grace and mercy going together. Mercy is what moves us to, to step into somebody else's pain. And here's the key principle. We're stepping into pain that they deserve. Their pain is a result of their own choices. It's not like they got tricked. No, mercy is about stepping into the pain that someone else deserves as a consequence of their sin and helping them carry those consequences. That's what mercy does. Pity or compassion plus action. Now, to help you feel that a little bit with me, I want you to take a little imagination trip with me. Now just imagine for a second that, that you suddenly find yourself in a position of power over somebody who has disrespected you, mistreated you, or abused you. Okay? It could be something simple like somebody just flipped you off on the Minnesota bypass and now they're wanting to get in in front of you to turn left in, into the car's uh, the grocery store. And they're wanting you to back off and give them a spot, even though they just flipped you off a half a mile before. See? Now, what do they deserve? Well, we won't talk about that. Or it could be maybe you get a promotion on the job, and the shift foreman that never gave you a break was always out to get you. He's now underneath your supervision. Or maybe you share a concern with a friend, and they tell you to shut up and mind your own business. And now, two months later, they're asking you to bail them out of a problem that they would have never had if they'd listened to you in the first place. Or maybe your spouse has been unfaithful to you. Maybe your spouse has gone and married someone else, ran off and married someone else and left you alone. And now they're asking you to do something to make their life easier. Or maybe it's a teenage child who rebels and refuses to listen and runs off and does all the things you ask them never to do. And now they're standing at the doorstep in your home begging you to take them back, asking you for mercy. See, mercy sees the consequences of sin, feels those consequences, and then sacrifices itself to carry the consequences for somebody else. Only Jesus can do that. That's a Jesus thing. No other philosopher in the world ever talked about that. 
Now, why does Jesus say that you're blessed if you're merciful? Well, I think it's because merciful people knows, they know what it means to receive mercy. And guess what? Every one of us needs mercy, don't we? Merciful people prove that they know and understand the value of mercy. They understand the love of Jesus Christ and what he did on the cross. As I extend mercy, as I learn to do that, then that understanding of what Jesus did for me grows in me. And I become a gospel person, realizing I don't have to validate myself or justify myself, that I don't have to offer my own righteousness to God, that I stand in His righteousness. You know, did you know that God will only ask you one question when you stand before Him? He'll ask you, whose righteousness do you bring me? And if you say, well, I bring my own righteousness plus a little of Jesus's, He'll say, depart from me, I never knew you. But if you say, you know, I, I know my life's a mess, but I stand here in the alien righteousness of Jesus Christ that he gave me by grace through faith, then you get to walk in the mercy and the wonder of God. That's the gospel. That's where we live. As I extend mercy, I begin to understand that. And also when I need mercy, and so I ask a friend to forgive me or stand in mercy. I know what I'm asking for. It's not free. <laughs> it's not cheap. And so those things create a blessing in my life. I grow in mercy by sharing it with the world, and that's a blessed life indeed. Now it's important to point out that the Beatitudes are not if-then clauses. They look like it in your English translation, right? Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. That looks like if you're merciful, then you get mercy. But that's not what Jesus is teaching. He's saying, because you've received mercy, that mercy will flow out of you. It is proof that you are blessed with the mercy of God. That's what he's saying. So now what I want to do is take the rest of the time we've got. Let's go into the Sermon on the Mount and see if we can understand a little bit more about this primary value, this pathognomonic symptom of Christianity. And I think in Matthew chapter 7, verses 1 through 12, there are four principles about mercy that can help you think through this issue. And here's the first one. Mercy is not tolerance. It is judgment, but it's judgment with the purpose of correction, not condemnation. You know, we, I'm about to show you a passage that people love to use to say, Look, Christians aren't supposed to judge. But I just want to challenge that for a moment. I mean, the argument is that we're supposed to be tolerant. The problem is we live in a culture where, you know what tolerance means? It means sit down and shut up, and if you don't agree, don't share your opinion. Right? Anything can happen. If it, just doesn't, if it doesn't bother you and your own life, you need to let it go. That's what tolerance is in our world. But that's not tolerance, people. That's cowardice. That's what that is. True tolerance is to adamantly disagree with someone and still love them. That's true tolerance, to let people believe and let them answer to God and not to you. So this passage isn't talking about tolerance, but it is telling us not to judge, at least in some senses. Let me show that to you. Here's the passage, beginning in verse 1 of chapter 7. Judge not that you be not judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged, and with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that's in your brother's eye, but don't notice the log that's in your own eye? 
Or how can you say to your brother, let me take that speck out of your eye when there's a log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you'll see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Now this metaphor would have been hilarious to those people who were listening to Jesus. Because he's talking about a little speck of dust in somebody's eye and a big old hurricane telephone pole beam in somebody else's eye. That's the picture he's painting. And I used to love this passage. It was one of my favorite passages. It was the only passage I memorized before I was a Christian. Do not judge. Well, there was one other passage. God gave every green plant for our enjoyment. I knew that one too. Yeah, you have to be pre-60s to understand that. But don't judge me, man. You got no right to judge me. This passage does not say do not judge. It says, as you judge, judge the way you want to be judged. You, you can't make a decision between what is good and bad or better and best without exercising judgment, can you? All discernment is a matter of judgment. This text is not saying don't judge. It's saying judge yourself first by the same standard so that the purpose of your judgment is not to condemn but to help somebody. That's what the text is saying. Realize that your need for mercy is every bit as great as everybody else's or anybody else's need for mercy, no matter what they've done. So before you wind up saying, well, that guy's just lazy, you need to say, is there any laziness in my life? Well, he's just a fool. Is there any foolishness in my life? So that as I take the log out of my own eye, then I can see clearly to help someone else. See, do judge, but don't condemn, the text says. That's the point here. God has called us to help each other as followers of Christ, not hang one another. The difference between condemnation and correction, well, there are a couple of them I point out to you. You know, condemnation has strict standards for others, but not so much for itself. People who love to condemn often have the same problem in private. Have you ever noticed that? Somehow they think that they have the right to be God and to put other people down and judge them. Condemnation is quick to criticize. It's not quick to grieve. Its first thought is always, well, if they wouldn't have done that, then they wouldn't be in the mess they're in. Whereas it seems to me that biblical judgment would lead us to a place that when someone falls, the first thing we'd do is hit our knees and grieve over the reality of sin in the world and the impact it's having in the life of loved ones. Correction is different. Now, by the way, let me just say, I hate this, but it's the truth. The reputation of the evangelical church in America is that we condemn. That's our reputation. And the reason we have that reputation is because we're too slow to look at the log in our own eye and way too quick to criticize the speck of dust in the culture around us. That's got to change if we want to reach the world for Christ. Correction is different. It begins with applying the same standard to yourself. I have a dear friend over at ChangePoint who's created a 12-step program he calls Path to Life. And he's a lawyer, but he's not judging anybody, okay? I really like the guy. And he, he's created this thing for people who have any kind of an addiction. 
Uh, you could be addicted to alcohol or drugs or sex addiction or any habitual problem. And Path of Life walks you through the steps that will lead you to health. Now, here's the cool thing about the Path of Life. I can promise you there's not a single person that ever goes into one of those meetings that feels condemned. And here's why. Because the guy who wrote the material and leads the class is as big an addict as anyone sitting in that classroom. Now, he's been 29 years sober. But he understands every time when he asks them to think about their own heart, to repent and trust God, he knows exactly what that means. He's applied it to his own life before he applies it to anybody else. That's correction, see. Makes a judgment that addiction is bad, but does it in a way without the beam in his own eye. That's so different from a brother, or a friend I knew before I was a Christian. You know, I went to Southern Oregon University down in Ashland, Oregon. Anybody ever been to Ashland? It's like 10 square miles surrounded by reality. You know, and Southern Oregon University is like one of the top 10 party schools in the U.S. Just this little school down there sitting on a, you know, on a, a keg. You know, we only had one fraternity at Southern Oregon. It was Kappa Keg. There was a sorority, but I won't tell you about it. But uh, it was a, it was a place was marinated in alcohol, you know, and uh, I was going to school there just like anybody else. I didn't know the Lord. I mean, what do you do when you don't know the Lord and you're off to college? But I had this buddy, and he was a Christian. He kept inviting me to intervarsity, but the guy had a bigger drinking problem than I had. But he was a binge drinker, one of these guys that would get drunk. He'd go out and get really drunk, and then he'd feel horrible the next day and go to church, right? and kind of purge, you know, and get forgiveness. And then he'd go on this three-month deal where he was a terror against anybody who used alcohol. And then he'd fall again, right, always in my presence. And so I always thought, well, this guy's just a hypocrite. I, I never forget how we go out to lunch, you know, when he's on one of those three-month kind of uh, purification ritual things. We'd go out to lunch, and I'd order a beer, and he'd say... Man, you know that's not good for you. God doesn't like it when you drink. I wanted to say, hey, last Saturday, do you remember who was holding your head? That was me. You're talking about my beer and you've been drinking? For crying out loud, take the beam out of your own eye. I knew he had a beam in his eye. I was pretty sure it was Jim Beam, to be honest with you. But see, the point is, how in the world can we get people to take us seriously about the value of a life dedicated to Christ if we're condemning them to something that we allow in ourselves? That's what Jesus is saying. Correction always begins with self-correction. Then it understands the challenges. And it will sacrifice for others because it knows their heartache. Now, it's interesting how this passage continues. Look at verse 6. Do not give dogs what is holy, and do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. Now, if you need proof that this passage doesn't say don't judge, then this verse will do it for you. This is pretty harsh in the context of mercy, don't you think? It says, don't judge, but don't give your pearls to pigs. Now, how do you know what a pig is if you don't judge? I mean, isn't that a judgment? And so the idea here is this when it comes to mercy. Mercy is not martyrdom either. It's not tolerance. It's not just letting anything happen. And mercy is not martyrdom. It's not, it's not 
letting people take advantage of you. It offers itself to those who will receive it. It's correcting, not enabling. And there's a difference, see. Enabling is when you do something that ultimately hurts someone who's struggling rather than helping them because you empower their addiction or their sin. This text says, look, the compassion of Jesus Christ is a holy thing. Don't throw it out to be trampled underneath by dogs or pigs who care nothing about their life changing or honoring God. Now, how do you know who a dog or a pig is? Dogs and pigs are unrepentant and unconfessing. They're unwilling to change. They just want immediate relief. And all I'm saying to you is that the most merciful thing you can do to someone who's unrepentant and unconfessing is to entrust them to the discipline of God. That God will bring them to the bottom of their sin. You need to say to them, I cannot help you. Only Jesus can help you. Take them to their need for Jesus, not their need for your money or your attention or your help. You've got that 18-year-old son standing on the doorway with a major addiction problem asking you if he can come back home and live, but he doesn't want to go into rehab. You need to say, I'm sorry. You cannot live here. Because all that will do is provide more money for your habit. If you're ready to go to rehab, I'll take you down there right now. But if you're not, I'm sorry. I cannot help you. Only Jesus can help you. You see that? That's merciful. Well, let's read on. Verses 7 through 11. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks it will be opened. For which one of you, if, a, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? You know, this may be the most misused and misapplied passage in the New Testament. As we go to this passage, we take it out of context, and here's what we think it says. Whatever you want, ask God for it. He'll give it to you. Is that how life works for you? Doesn't work for me that way. I mean, I beg God to fill my cup, and he eats my lunch. Right? You ever have that experience? I mean, this, and you wind up saying, well, I must not really believe, or something like that. If I know how to give good gifts to my kids, my father's going to give me good things, and we find all kinds of ways to explain why we don't get what we ask for. But see, this passage is in the context of mercy. And if you put it there, then it makes total sense. What the passage is saying is that mercy is hard. It's the hardest thing you will ever do to give away the bitterness you feel towards someone who's betrayed you. To help somebody else carry the consequences of their sin that they deserve because of their own choices. That is a difficult, difficult thing to do. And this passage says, when you find yourself there and you're saying, Lord, I can't do it. I don't have the resources to extend mercy. You ask and your Father will give you those resources every single time, guaranteed. See, it's about mercy. 
He will certainly provide what you need. The principle is this. Not only is mercy not tolerance and it's not martyrdom, mercy is not natural either. (laughs) It really demands that we trust the goodness of God. God's got to give us the ability to do it. You know, there are a few great examples of that. I found one while I was reading my favorite theologian, Abigail Van Buren. Um, This person writes, Dear Abby, I had to write and tell you about my story of mercy. I'm white and my wife is black. And 15 years ago, we got married. My mother disowned me and cursed my wife's existence. She never acknowledged any of our three children. She just cut us out of her life as though I had died. Two and a half years ago, my mother was stricken with a debilitating form of cancer. It was obvious that she would have to go to a nursing home. And although there are five of us siblings in the family, none of the other four volunteered to take her. Now, what does that tell you about mom? My wife came forward and said no one in her family would go to a nursing home as long as we had a home. And at first it wasn't easy, but my wife and mother eventually developed a very special relationship. You see, when my mother couldn't dress herself, my wife dressed her. When my mom couldn't feed herself, my wife fed her. When my mom couldn't get up and go to the bathroom, my wife changed her dirty diapers. And through those two years, although my mom constantly abused her verbally, my wife never once complained. My mom told my wife many times how sorry she was for all the years she wasted. But the best thing of all is that our children grew to know and love their grandmother before she died. I feel very blessed indeed. Sign me, blessed in the Midwest. And you know, we ought to feel blessed. She's married to an angel. That woman's got the real disease. There's only one greater example I can think of. That is the one who knew no sin but became sin. Who, although he was reviled, refused to revile in return. When insulted, refused to insult. But kept entrusting himself to the one who judges rightly. And by his stripes, we are healed. Well, there's one final principle. You know, before I go there, it occurs to me, Jesus knew what he was talking about. In the Garden of Gethsemane, what was he doing there? You know, he was just about to do the most unnatural thing you can possibly imagine. He was about to sacrifice his life, experiencing unbelievable torture and pain for people who were his enemies and ultimately were the ones that would hang him there. What Jesus Christ was doing in the Garden of Gethsemane was begging the Father for the power of mercy that he might have what he needed to extend mercy to an undeserving world. Well, one final principle. That is that mercy is not optional. It, it proves that we have the heart of God. Look at verse 12, another verse that's taken out of context. So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. The golden rule. Do you ever realize that that's in the context of mercy? That if you think you need mercy, you need to extend mercy? Live a life of mercy, because when we do that, the entire law of God is fulfilled. See, 
exposing mercy, extending mercy, illustrates the fact that I know the gospel, I know my God, and that I'm dependent upon him for my own mercy. And then when I extend that to others, it shows the love of God to others. So I wind up doing both aspects, loving the Lord my God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength, and loving others as myself. And in doing that, I fulfill the entire law and all the prophets. See, mercy, 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 <laughs> mercy is a pathognomonic symptom of the real disease of Christianity. You don't, don't tell me you're a follower of Jesus Christ if you can't extend mercy. You are a walking contradiction. But when the compassion of Jesus, that is Christian compassion, is married to the action of Jesus, that is Christian action, then the mercy of God is seen, and that's the gospel of Jesus Christ, the unquestionable sign of those who truly believe. You know, when I started this message, I told you of Monsignor O'Flaherty's arch enemy, Lieutenant Colonel Kapler and Ludwig or Pietro Koch. And I told you that Koch had the audacity to ask for mercy. He asked O'Flaherty to spare his wife and mother. And of course, you probably guessed O'Flaherty did what he was asked. But Herbert Kapler, he never asked for mercy. In fact, he stood his ground defiant and arrogant, convinced that all he'd done is serve the fewer in the motherland, that he was justified in his actions. And so after the war, Kapler was tried and convicted for war crimes. He was sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole, and he spent most of that life in prison in solitary confinement. He died in 1978. But from the end of the war to the time of his death, except for his wife, he only received during that time one visitor. Each and every month, a tall, broad-shouldered man would call on the former Nazi Gestapo. It was the Scarlet Pimpernel of his attitude. Monsignor Hugh O'Flaherty. Out on yet another rescue mission. And in 1959, through tears of repentance and confession, Herbert Kapler asked O'Flaherty to baptize him. So he stood underneath the hand of the man that he'd tried to kill so many, many times and surrendered to the mercy of Jesus. You know, I don't know anything about most of your lives, but I know this. Not a single one of you here who doesn't need mercy. Every one of us need it. I need it more than most of you. But it doesn't matter what you've done or what world you come from or what you think you're guilty of. If the mercy of Jesus Christ is sufficient for Herbert Kapler, it's sufficient for you. All you got to do is cry out and say, Jesus, I need it. Fill me with your mercy. There are some of you here who you've got bitterness or you're holding something against somebody and it is hindering your relationship with God and with others. And I'll just tell you, if the mercy of God can provide the power that would allow Monsignor Hugh O'Flaherty to visit Herbert Kapler every single month until he came to know Jesus, then that same God can give you the power to forgive whoever you're dealing with. 
But don't tell me you're a follower of Jesus Christ if you don't need and love mercy. I want you to stand with me a moment. And I'm going to ask your pastor to come pray for you. Before I do that, I want you to just close your eyes and I want you to think about this. For some of you, the greatest need right now, which you're feeling prompted, is to cry out to God for mercy. That's some of you. Others of you, you know when I say it, that you have, you have, God wants you to extend mercy to somebody and you've got a face and a name in your mind. As Brad prays for you, I want you to be thinking about those two needs, where you need the mercy of God and where others need you to extend mercy. So, Brad, let's pray for your people. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your timely, timeless word. Thank you, Brother Dan, here being used as a vessel unleash your word into our minds and hearts. So, Lord, based upon those two challenges, we want to pray. God, those that are here that need to be receivers of your mercy, that need to come and throw themselves before the Lord Jesus Christ and for the first time in their life receive mercy, would you draw them to that decision? Please, Lord, give them the faith to believe, the open heart to receive. And then secondly, the challenge to be a river of mercy instead of a reservoir. Not to hold it in and hoard it, but to give it freely. I was thinking about the words of Jesus Christ just a couple of chapters later there in Matthew. Freely you have received, freely give. Lord, let us be rivers of mercy. Bring those names, those individuals to our minds and hearts. Thank you, Lord, that you're doing that right now. I heard the story after the first service someone that took that challenge and after that service went over and took care of business and granted mercy where it was needed. Thank you for that. Do that many times over, Lord, right here in this place again this morning. Thank you. Thank you for Change Point, the ministry there. Bless them, God. Let your mercy and grace be poured out upon them in unlimited measure as they dispense that throughout the world. In Christ's name, amen. Let's continue to worship.